Hello, I'm Mariette Sneijman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today's topic is the decision that helped me find my way out of depression. My guest is Clive van der Wagen, trainer, coach and speaker from Johannesburg. Welcome, Clive. Hi, Mariette. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, after our conversation, Clive will give us his three best tips on living a life of intention. Now, Clive, we used to work together quite a while yes, ago, and did. it's so nice to be with you again. Thanks for coming. It's a pleasure. It's lovely to see you again. Now, a couple of years ago, you felt that you didn't want to live anymore, mm. and you were taken to a psychiatric hospital. But before we talk about that turning point in your life, uh, let's talk about your childhood. When you look back, what comes up for you? Um, let's start with the dark stuff, shall we? <laughs> so I, I, I kind of the word I would use to describe my childhood was disruptive. Um, I, I, there are moments in my childhood which obviously were, were beautiful, but it's the amazing thing about, I think, in our childhood, and I think it's for all of us humans, is the trauma in our childhood is often what's written in bold um, on our kind of souls or in our personality and psyche. So um, my childhood was disruptive mostly, and I, I share this in a TED talk I did recently about um, my mom's suicide. So that was a huge turning point. I was about eight years old when my mother took an overdose. Um, and she decided she didn't want to live anymore. Um, and I think my decision later on in life to not want to live anymore was almost, she showed me that it was an option from that age. Um, I think if she had to be diagnosed today psychiatrically, she would have been diagnosed as bipolar. Um, when I see things now, you know, or look back now and I see there were moments when she was spending prolifically and, you know, she was... She was having affairs, and so we always, my dad wasn't present, and there were different men that were coming in. Um, and my dad exited, and we obviously had to mourn that loss. And so she was, she was quite volatile, or she would just be lying in bed, tranquilized to the hilt. You know, the doctor gave her, in those days, sleeping tablets and tranquilizers, which she ultimately used to kill herself. Um, and then having to kind of forge a life from there without her. Um, so my childhood, the kind of word that is disruptive and the other kind of thing that I, 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 I've had to deal with is abandonment. Um, it did feel, first of all, like my dad abandoned us when he left and also abandonment when my mom left. So, but that said, we still had really good times. I remember going to Santa Rama and looking at the little cities. And I remember there's so many good things about my childhood as well. But unfortunately, yeah, what kind of is written in bold is the moments that really created quite severe pain. And I think at eight years old, it was quite a life changing and changed the, the kind of narrative of my life quite significantly. Yes, I must say, listening to your TEDx talk, I realized that if it doesn't happen to you, I don't think you have an inkling. Mm. I think so. And I think it's because it is so, 
it's so completely shocking, you know, in terms of, of because you're left with more questions than there are answers. Um, and I think with most deaths, you know, when they happen, um, when they happen, you know, because someone has a car accident or someone gets sick, there's ways of rationalizing yourself out of it eventually. But I sit, still sit with the question of why? Why did she do it? Why wasn't I enough to live for? There's all of these questions that I don't think normally would exist when it comes to loss because you experience a real personal almost attack from her from her death because it was it was a decision to not be with you is how especially at eight years old i mean mm. my mom was everything i was living with her. my dad had left she was my sole caregiver um and to arrive home and find out that she was you know and i speak in the tedx talk about you know guiding the ambulance to take her to the hospital when she was already dead um, and having to experience that I don't mm. think I wouldn't wish it on anyone mm. um, but yeah it's we've but we've all been through stuff that's the thing we we all sit next to a person who's a pool of tears yes. so my pool of tears is just mine i'm sure you have mm. stories as mm. well to tell so everyone does i think yeah. we can relate to that although in different ways mm. and now we're moving to adulthood mm. uh, you got several qualifications and you were in demanding positions in the corporate world would yeah. you like to talk about that I don't know if I would like to talk about that. <laughs> Look where it got me. <laughs> Give us one sentence. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I've I've done a lot of different things, which has been actually amazing. I I kind of have never stuck to one career, and sometimes ended up in careers where I've gone, how did I end up here? Um, which has been amazing, but also made me realize now in adulthood about the power of intention and living our life with intention, because I kind of think. I went wherever someone told me that I was worth being because I lived in the state of unworthiness. So often I was, you know, went to a career where someone just said to me, you'll be great at this. And I was like, yay, great, let's go. So um, I worked in, in publishing for a, a number of years. I first started off my career in acting. And so I did drama, um, worked as an actor, worked in an actor's agency But when I and did that in Cape Town. When I moved back into Johannesburg, I edited magazines and then eventually moved to Caxton where I um, was creative strategy director and I looked after the in-house studio. Um, and that was great fun because it was creative magazine people. I mean, we worked there together, are amazing people. And, uh, you know, in its heyday, magazines were, were gold, you know. And so, yeah, we were doing exciting things. Um, headed out of that, though, and started working more in the corporate space, at first in training. Um, I started working with a company which um, trained using industrial psychology and um, a, a form of, tran of, of psychology called transactional analysis to work in corporates um, to basically in terms of customer service, leadership, etc. And one of my big clients was one of the blue chip insurance companies. And they offered me a job full time to to come train at their in in the in the insurance company, and from there they decided that I was so good with people that they decided to make me the head of people and the head of HR, 
even though I never had an HR background. And of course, I just said, yes, you want me? Yes, I'll do it. So I ended up in a position in corporate where I was very high up. I was in the Exco. I was earning more money than I'd ever earned before. Insurance companies, you know, have give you shares. They, you know, it becomes very lucrative and very attractive. But I got into a space where I just absolutely hated every second of it and realized that while on paper everyone was saying to me wow you've made it I was like I've taken 75,000 steps back not because the company was awful but just because it wasn't being true to me so I have since left then and we'll talk about my reasons I'm sure why I left um, and gone back into the training sphere so that's been my main focus so I train and coach and now, um, you know, I'm, I'm being invited to speak in corporate. So I still work a lot with corporates, but I don't want to be employed by a corporate. I like going into a corporate, sharing knowledge and leaving. Mm. <laughs> so my corporate experience has, while it's been good, um, yeah, it's been a good journey to get out of it mm. as well. So you know what suits you. Yeah. And then I want to jump to the day you had your first real panic attack. Mm. Yeah, that was a that was a, a horrific day actually, and I've never experienced anything like that. I'd always thought I'd had panic attacks before, and I suddenly realized that that was just anxiety, you know, when the heart beats a bit fast, and you you know, but this was this was an experience I've never had before. So, just to give a bit of context, when I became head of HR. I also became head of employee relations within the company. So I was very much in a space where I was giving people disciplinary warnings, hearings. I was terminating people. I terminated someone on Christmas Eve. Um, and my personality is not one of divorce. It's one of relationship. Um, and HR is unfortunately not HR takes a, in, and and they're very good HR people who are very good with the people and the empathy, but also very good with the the separation and the need for processes and disciplinary. I was very good on the empathic side, but almost too good at that. You know, I, I, I was too empathic um, and I couldn't handle the, the processes and the procedures. And I remember the, there was a decision that one of the cost centers wasn't doing well in the department. And there was a business decision to, to scale down a department and this, the, they were going to now start the retrenchment process in Section 189s. And I had to announce it to this group, this, this team. And I'd worked with them when I, I trained them. So I was quite close to them from uh, helping them. And now suddenly I was standing up saying, you probably aren't going to have jobs, the 20 of you. It'll probably only be four of you. So we need to start this process. Um, and there were single moms, mostly um, young women. And I, I left there and I just saw their faces and they were asking questions. And I had to put on this face of this HR face, but inside my heart was breaking. And I was also just taking it personally. I was carrying their pain because I could see it. Um, and I remember leaving and I had to leave work after that. And I was driving in the car and I, it felt like I couldn't breathe in, and my shirt felt like it was starting to burn me. And I actually ended up in the car ripping off my shirt. So I, I, it must have looked horrific to anyone who was driving past me. But I, I literally, I, I drove the last stage of the way with, I mean, I think I had 
kind of fragments of my shirt still on. But I, I ripped my shirt off and I went and I, I remember lying on my bed, struggling to breathe with this ripped off shirt kind of tatters around and just struggling to kind of find any kind of sense because my mind just felt like it was spiraling. I didn't know and didn't make sense that I was responding and that my body was responding like that and I could do nothing to calm it down. Um, so eventually I just lay there just trying to breathe uh, and trying to until eventually it passed and took about an hour where I sat there and that was the first time I, I flagged that something was wrong in terms of what I was doing with my life and how it was affecting me emotionally. Um, and that was the first of a couple of panic attacks that happened from there. But that was the most severe one I've ever experienced. Mm -hmm. Now, more than two and a half years ago, you felt that you didn't want to live anymore. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I got to a point where I was... So I was good at my job, I think, you know, because they, when I left, they asked me to stay, which is always a good sign. Um, but I eventually, I'd stepped out to a place of, I stepped out from a place of meaning. I felt like I just, things felt meaningless because of what I was doing. I was, I was, so I'd walked into politics and I'd also walked into the, the, the corporate that I was working for also restructuring the HR division. So I got this promotion, but was then also handed a section 189 so I could potentially be retrenched. Um, I was also very much on the radar. Um, there was, there were racism accusations because they replaced a person of color with me as a white male um, and people had flagged this and so while it wasn't aimed at me I was very much in uh, on the radar of very prominent people and ignored by some people because they perceived me as being aligned with the enemy in the company corporate politics can be very brutal um, and that was my first experience of the brutality of corporate politics, especially at that level. And I just find myself losing resilience where I just could not deal with what was being thrown at me as well as, you know, kind of having to do my day-to-day -day job. And also people were turning on me. I suddenly had the staff saying, why are we being treated like this? And I could no longer, you know, I had to be procedural about it. I couldn't empathize with them. And then I had the exco accusing me of being too empathic with the people because I wasn't being procedural enough. So I had both sides kind of turning on me where, and I felt completely alone. And it's, it was the bizarrest sensation. It was just the one morning there had been an, an incident at work which I, where I had stood up for the people once again and placed a target on my back. And there had been quite a quite a strong um, reaction to to my reaction to what a decision that was made, um, and I felt quite bullied in that. And I remember waking up; it was a Wednesday morning, and I just felt. I said to my partner that I needed to take a mental health day because I just literally couldn't climb out of bed, and it was almost like. You know, people speak about fight or flight, but I, I, I went into freeze, 
where I literally could not move. So when I got, when my partner got back that night, I was still in my pajamas and I was just, I was literally functionless. And I just said to him, I said, I just, and I had been, I haven't shared this before, but I had been stocking up tranquilizers, almost planning. And, and I said, I said, this is what I'm thinking of doing. This is, this is the plan and I need, I need help. And so um, he, along with my family, then intervened um, and sent me off to a psychiatric hospital out in, in Randburg, where I spent three weeks just really kind of licking my wounds, sleeping most of the time. And um, you spent every day you, you got psychiatric assistance and psychological assistance. But it was really those three weeks where I kind of decided I had to kind of decide what I was going to do with my life because, you know, I got out and I was like, how did I get here? And the thing is, is that it crept up so quickly and so easily that I didn't even realize that I was at that space where literally if I, I think what stopped me was I wasn't sure if the medical aid would pay, sorry, if the life cover would pay out for suicide. And that was, the, you know, so that, that was the kind of point I got to. Um, yeah, and that was a, a big turning point in terms of me deciding whether I was going to end my life or what, whether, what I was going to do with my life. Mm. But it was a devastating place to get to. How wonderful that you told your partner yeah. what you were planning. Yeah, and I, I, I don't think... And... and with complete transparency here. Also, what had happened was the only thing I did during that day was I, I drank wine. And because that was my escape, it was literally to try and numb. And I think it was because by the time he got back, I was feeling slightly more confident because I was slightly drunk. Well, I was probably very drunk. Um, but I remember the conversation. And yeah, I think that was that gave me the courage to actually speak out. So while I don't drink now as a response to because, you know, alcohol is depressant at the time, I think I'm grateful that I was <laughs> was speaking about it, because I think that is the most important thing when we get to the stage is to speak. I'd been so silent that he was actually surprised that I was in the space that it had got to the point of where I was literally functionless where I, I couldn't even, you know, I, I hadn't fed myself that day. It was, I was, he had never seen me like that. And I had never seen me like that. Um, and he, he had seen the progression, whereas this kind of caught me by surprise. So I, I am very glad that I spoke. And I think it is the power of asking for help. And I'm very glad that I did, because I don't think I'd be here today if I didn't. Now, at one stage, you made a decision to see the world differently. Mm. Um, I'd like you to tell us about that. And then you have also told me that, that one should be careful when talking about depression and decisions because all types of depression aren't, aren't the same. Mm. Absolutely. So, yeah, I, so I, there was a point. So I carried on working in the corporate um, and... People just used to say to me, you look so sad, and I was. And so I was trying to negotiate what I do. So I asked for my previous job back, which they couldn't do because, you know, at that stage they had combined my roles. 
Um, and also I was now also under a section 189. So I kind of got to a point where, and my partner and I went out for dinner and I just said, it was, it was October of 20, when did COVID strike? 2020. So it was 2019. It was October of 2019. And I said to him, I said, we were having dinner and I just said, I can't do this anymore. And for my own sanity, I'm going to take the step to freelance because I decided I'd sat down and wrote what did I want out of my life. And I came up with a one line and it's part of what I'm going to share at, at, at the end. I came up with a one line plan for my life and it's my business model. It's everything. I kind of said, well, who is Clive? You know, because the Clive that people were expecting me to show up as I couldn't do anymore. So I wrote down and the only thing that I could write down is Clive exists to make people better. So, and that's where the training comes from, the coaching comes from. I, I believe that my childhood and kind of what had happened has formed in me a need to, I believe people who have a need to parent or people who they've had a need to be parented. So my lack of parenting almost has made me want to care for people and parent people in a way to try and heal the relationship of not being parented myself. But that's also created a very beautiful part of me and I've had to celebrate that. So I, I looked at that as a very beautiful part of me of wanting to make people better. And so I said I was going to, I said to my partner, I'm going to go on this journey where I'm going to give the company two months notice because I felt that that was ethically fair so that they could find someone to replace me. And I didn't want to leave the people in the lurch. And then from the February of the next year, I would start my own business and start consulting, whether that be that I went back into writing because I'd been in journalism or whatever it was, but I was going to do something where I felt I was just adding value to the world. And that was a significant change. And I can remember that moment when I went in and I said, this is what I'm doing. And they were like, you're mad, you're resigning without a job. And I said, I think I'm resigning with the best job in mind that I've ever had. You know, I, while I don't know if I'm going to earn an income it's, you know, it, I'm going to just take a complete risk based on how I want my life to look um, rather than kind of letting it just be dictated to by what other people have expected of me. And so that was a very significant moment was when I decided, OK, I'm going to I'm going to change how I view the world and actually step into a place of power. And then to get to the second point about different kinds of depression. And yeah, I, so I'm not clinically depressed. Um, I, I would say I have anxiety disorder um, if we had to diagnose something. And that's what they diagnosed me with um, at the, when I was at the psychiatric hospital. So I am on an antidepressant. And I do believe that if that's the place you need to get to, there is no judgment from my side. I know some people use meditation, etc. But clinical depression is different. And I think as soon as you feel clinical depression, I think you need to get professional help. But I think the level of depression that I got to was one where I needed to, I was able to step out of it, but I needed assistance. And I think a lot of getting out of depression is asking for help, is raising your hand and saying, this is not a space I can be in anymore. And yeah, so I think I've been fortunate in terms of being able to turn my depression around. But I know some people who struggle with it. It's a very different place, that ongoing sense of, 
of darkness is a terrible place to be in. And since then, you've done several things to improve your mental health. Yeah, I have actually. So I stopped drinking. That was a big thing, actually. So I wasn't, I've never called myself an alcoholic, but I was definitely a nighttime drinker. I would come home and have my glass of wine. I studied wine, so I love the craft of wine. Um, but eventually I did feel like it was becoming a crutch that I would get home, especially when I was going through the corporate days, um, I would get home and I would be like, I need a glass of wine after today. And sometimes I'd end up being like, oh, wow, <laughs> where did the bottle go? <laughs> you know, and so um, I, I kind of decided that after I'd spent time in the psychiatric hospital and a little while after that, I decided that I needed to not add anything into my life that was a depressant. So the first thing was is that alcohol was a depressant. I could feel it the next morning. I was more anxious, if I'd, especially if I had binged the night before. I would feel depressed. I would feel anxious. I would feel like life was a bit more hopeless than I'd felt the day before. So I kind of said, well, let me experience life without alcohol in it. I've just was going to do a 60-day challenge and um, ended up just not drinking ever since then. And then um, I also decided to stop listening to the news, which as a person who has studied journalism, I have a master's degree in journalism, <laughs> was a very difficult decision. But I stopped reading the news um, because I, I found that it made me feel like it was something I couldn't control. And the other thing that I started doing was started adding in techniques into my life where I looked at what I could control versus what I couldn't control. So, so much of anxiety is about what you can't control. It's spending time in that area of your life. Like I can't control COVID, but you know, I, there's no point in being anxious about it. I've got to look at what I can control in COVID. And those are the kind of steps that I put into it. And then also the shift in career was I decided that I was going to do, I say yes to a lot of things, but it has to fall under the banner of I make people better. If it doesn't, I say no. So it's, it was very much a decision to live my life with intention. Um, and so the books I read, what I add into my life, the movies I watch, um, the music I listen to even, I don't allow myself to listen to those sad, depressing music anymore. <laughs> I dance every day to good, upbeat, thumper music because I know that that's going to just make my energy different. So it's small little things, really. I wish I could say I've had this kind of big changes, but I've just, I've really made small little shifts in my life to make sure that I'm adding in positivity and health and wellness and just look after myself. It's more useful to me to hear about, well, they're not really small things, hey? Mm. Uh, some of them aren't small, but that you persevere with that. I think that is probably... The, the most important thing. What helps you do that? It's about making it become a habit. So there's a great book called Atomic Habits by James Clear, which was life-changing for me. And he speaks about chunking on habits. So you start small. So it's if you meditate, start with a minute of meditation and let that become a habit and then add on a minute. So that's just a, a very small example. And so what I did is I've let certain things become habits in my life. So journaling, for example, is very important to me. Um, and it, not a day goes by that I don't pick up my journal. And at five o'clock in the morning, I now go and sit down with my cup of coffee. It's my ritual and I journal. 
And if it's after, if I sleep a little bit later than five, I can immediately feel that I've missed it and I've broken my routine. So it's almost like I've added in these things of, of becoming habits. And then also what I've done is I've focused on the benefits. I don't focus on what I've lost in these things. So a lot of people like, for example, stopping drinking, they think, oh, but what am I going to lose? I can't have bubbles at a, at a wedding. And I get that, you know, but I've looked at what benefits I've had from it in terms of the better sleep, the less anxiety. I lost eight kilos, you know, so which also is great for your mental health. Um, so all of these things is that I focus on the benefits of what they do. And when you focus on the benefits rather than what you've lost, it does help you to persevere in them. And if anything does feel more of a loss than a benefit, I cut that out of my life. So it's, it is about making sure that I'm, I'm adding in things that benefit and then I work hard to make them a habit. So I set specific times where I do certain things. I have a personal trainer, as an example. So I'm set in exercising because I know that exercising makes my mental health better, but I'm terrible at getting to the gym. So I pay someone who keeps me accountable and shouts at me if I don't do 20 push-ups, <laughs> you know, because those are the kind of things that I've, I'm investing in what's going to make me better so I can make others better. Yes, you seem very clear about what you do and the advantages and the disadvantages and the choices you make. I think it, it's what we can take from you, or what I can take from you, is to go and sit down and clarify what's going on in your life mm. and what could make it better. And the word that you've said that I love that you said was choice. Because I think so often what we do is we get caught up in what we can't choose. Um, and so I can't choose, I couldn't choose my mom committing suicide, but I can choose how to respond to it. And it's taken 40 years since her death to get to a point of really kind of feeling like I have left it behind and who knows what will emerge, you know, trauma bubbles up to the surface every now and then. But I really do feel that my TEDx talk speaks about how I've come to a place of real kind of acceptance of that. And I think it is about that word choice. And it's realizing that we do actually have a choice in how we design our lives. And it's not about saying, I'm going to earn this much money. Sometimes we don't have a choice in that. But what am I going to do with what I've got? And I think the acceptance of accepting what I have and choosing what's best to do with it, as opposed to saying, I wish I could have, I wish there wasn't COVID. Now, what am I going to do? I mean, I look at what you've done creating this podcast and your website. People, you had a choice. You could have either decided that COVID was going to, you know, we both worked at Claxton at the time when things shifted and they said to us, they're closing the department. There's choice. I could have either gone into a bottle of wine and lay in the bed and done nothing, or I could make a choice to say, okay, well, what am I going to do given what I've got? Mm. And I think that that's what's incredibly powerful yes. to do. Yes. I really like it. Focus on what you have control over instead of... Mm. Yeah. That's been the most life-changing thing for me. Mm. Is And it's a CBT technique of just saying... And I write down often. I draw a line on a piece of paper. And if I'm anxious about something, say a meeting that I'm going into, and I'll write down what I can't control on the side. So I can't control 
you know, how they respond to what I present. I can't control whether they book me or not. I can't control who's in the room. I can't, co- you know, all of that. But what I can control is the quality of my presentation, my timekeeping and whether I show up on time. And I focus on what's on the left-hand side of the page. And I almost just surrender to what's on the right-hand side and just say, that's what I can't control, so let me focus on what I can control and from a place of strength go into that meeting. That's just an example of what I do, and it's a choice that I make to Mm. do that. That's a very helpful technique, I think. Mm. Now, you've talked about the past, and can you now tell us how you feel about the present? So the present is actually, I feel really excited. And I I was in in a meeting last night with a group of of people who study transactional analysis, which is what I I study. And we were all talking about how almost this time of the year, and I think given where COVID and everything is, there's a lot more positivity around generally, which is helpful. (laughs) Um, But I'm feeling incredibly positive about the present, but also quite pragmatic about the present i am i'm very aware that i am aging which has been an intricate i turned 50 this year which is a milestone birthday um and i'm very aware that that there's certain things that need to shift when you get to certain ages and you know and there's a certain way of seeing life that i want to enter my 50s you know going into so I'm very pragmatic that the present is very much based on where I am now, and but yet I'm positive with what I have. I at 50 had so many. I thought I would be, you know, a millionaire. I'd be Madonna on stage and the world, <laughs> you know, fawning over me. You know, we have all these dreams and aspirations and invincibility in our 20s, and I think I've really come to a place of real acceptance in my present is to say that this is it you know this is what i have and i do have the choice now of am i going to make the most of it and add um to to my skill set to my abilities to my friendship circle to the people around me or am i going to wish for what i could have had or should have had um and i'm feeling quite positive that i'm in a place of saying i'm really proud of where i am I'm really proud that I fought depression, that I fought to live, that I, I mean, people could be embarrassed about going to a psychiatric hospital. I'm very proud of the fact that I did it. It was a huge step of saying I matter. And also people saying to me, you matter. And that's what's affecting my present is choosing those moments of saying I'm actually, my present is significant. My present is is something I'm choosing to build on into the future. But I don't want to get stuck in in my present as well. But I'll talk about that because that's part of my three tips. Yes, yes. (laughs) Now, Clive, you've written, and I quote, I teach people to consciously respond rather than to react to the situations they face, whether it be with customers or internal stakeholders. Now, this quote seems to me to point to a connection between what you've just told us and the work you do. Mm, absolutely. And it is one of the things that when I go into training groups or coaching people, uh, because my focus is around business, I don't do the life coaching, you know, in terms of individual stuff, it is always in a business space. Um, and what I do is I often the words I, I use almost every session 
is that I can't deal with the way people treat you. But what I can do is offer ways that you can respond to what's thrown at you. Because that's the only thing that we can deal with. And that's the only thing I can deal with in my life. You know, I could have a car accident leaving our, our chat together. That's not something I've planned. But I can choose how to respond to it if it happens. I'm allowed to be traumatized, but I can't stay there. And that's what I keep saying to people is, is that you're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be almost childlike in your response. But you can't, you can't stay there. You've got to make a decision of how am I going to choose to respond. When I've let the emotion go, when I've vented, whatever you need to do to kind of release the child. And I do that in my own life as well, is I allow myself to feel what I'm feeling. But I make a conscious effort. And sometimes that means calling someone and saying, this is how I'm feeling. Is it appropriate? <laughs> And getting there on it, and there's certain people who know. I don't want, I don't want you to placate me. I want you to tell me you're being oversensitive because I do tend to oversensitivity. So those are the kind of things I want to teach people as well, is because we so often get caught up in how we things are affecting us instead of getting caught up in how we're responding to them, because that's where power lies. Power lies in our decision to respond. And that's something I bring into my life. And that's something I actively teach people using emotional intelligence, psychological skills, um, in leadership and how to deal with people. It's something I actively do is teach people how to respond versus to react. Where can people learn more about the work you do? Oh, I can, you can go to my website. So I have a website and my company's name is called Ready People because I believe in getting people ready for business, for life, whatever it might be. So um, it's www.readypeople.co.za. I'm also very active on LinkedIn if you'd like to look for Clive van der Wagen there. And I have a speaking platform as well, which is just about my the talks that I do, etc. And that's www.clivevandervagen.com. So you can check me out then. All my contact details are there. And you also have a YouTube channel. Yes, I do. Yes, I've got it. It's just under Clive van der Wagen. And there I yeah, share either myself in the garden, just chatting about stuff. And some of the, I have interviewed some amazing people. And we chat about mindset and mindfulness, um, resilience, whatever it might be. Yeah, I haven't been great about posting lately, but I will get better. Um, so I've got some, a few videos in the pipeline. And I also have a podcast on eBiz Radio. It's called La Unscripted Life, where I talk to people who are ordinary South Africans who've done extraordinary things. Um, and talking about how do, you, how do you fight to get to where they are now. And these are people who, some of them are celebrities, some of them were head of Childline, and yeah, that's been amazing as well. So I, I get to speak to very interesting people. So I, I'm all over I, by the sounds of things online. <laughs> you are. I'll attach the links to your two websites to the podcast. Thank you. Yes, great. Now for your three best tips on living a life of intention. Ah, yes. And these are stuff I love talking about. So I'm very much about living an intentional life. So much about coaching, for example, when you learn how to be a coach, it's about goal setting. And I think there's a step before goal setting. So my first 
tip is really to set intentions. What is your intention in your life? And I think there's an overarching one, like my intention is to make people better. I don't believe that you are created for a purpose and we can argue this and if you, you know, if anyone's listening wants to have a cup of coffee and we can talk about this, I'm very happy to. I love talking about it. But I believe that we create our purpose based on our skill set, based on, and we become passionate about what we become good at. Um, and so what I believe is, is that what we need to do is say, this is the intention I want to set in my life and let your purpose follow. So I'm very, I very much say to people at the beginning of the year, beginning of the month, or even every day, what is my intention for the day? What is my intention for the month? What is my intention for the year? What is my intention for my life? What do I want people to say at my funeral one day? Do I want to say, you know, and I've been to those funerals where people were like, you know, say the, the stuff that, you know, he was very nice. And yeah, I want people to be really heartfelt, say, Clive made a difference. And that's my intention. So those are the kind of things that, that, that I say is, is that firstly, don't just focus on goals. Your goals must be grounded in your intention and your purpose for your life. The second one is write a dear future self, because we, we get stuck in the present. And what we do is we think that this is all we have without realizing that actually what we have is huge possibility ahead of us. And so what I do is at the beginning of every year is I write a Dear Future Self for Clive at the end of 2022, for example. And, I, and this is, it's a congratulatory letter. So I congratulate myself on being sober. I congratulate myself on journaling more often than I didn't. So these are all things that I... Almost they're goals that I set, but I write them as if they've happened. And it's actually a very powerful technique because it also, it's what you want to look like in a year's time. Um, it can be, some people do it five years time. I don't find that helpful. I quite, I quite like looking in the short term. So I want to say well done on, you know, keeping to the weight you have, you know, whatever it might be. Also, and, and saying that, you know, I write in there things like, Things haven't always gone according to plan, but well done on choosing to respond. So all the things that I want the year to look like, I write those. So a tip would be to write a dear future self. What do you want yourself to look like? And even if it's just a dear Clive at the end of the day, whatever, whoever, whatever you want to write, but it's very, just try it. It's incredibly powerful. And the third thing is when you've, and I've just written a blog about it called Run Towards What Scares You. And that is about action. So, so often when we get scared, we withdraw, we become little. Um, Brené Brown calls it shrinking. We either shrink or sometimes we puff. So, but we can't shrink. What we need to do is make sure that the opposite of depression for me, not clinical depression, but the opposite of depression is, is action. So often our natural instinct when life feels out of control is to withdraw, is to do what I did, lie in bed, go and drink wine, go and, you know, kind of sit in a corner and just wish it would all go away. But the most powerful thing you can do is act. Either say, I'm in a bad place and I need help. Either act by going for a run or meditating or just phoning up someone saying, I need coffee. Sometimes just action is, is like I said, I dance. <laughs> I'm not feeling great, just get, but do something anything that's not withdrawal because I think that that is where the spark happens and the shift happens your body your mind follows your body so just get up do something act 
Don't allow yourself to sit passively. Those are my kind of three, and I know they're not little tips, but those are the three kind of things that guide my life and I think um, are helpful to other people as well in guiding their lives. Thank you, Clyde. Pleasure. Now, may I ask you a fun question? You may. <laughs> What comes to mind when I say the words, on top of the world? On top of the world. Um, so, <laughs> so, that's such a fun question. Uh, on top of the world, for me, is about experience. And it's something that, I, so in April this year, I'm thinking of going to spend a month in a country and a city that I've never been to and just because I do everything online. So I can go and spend a month in Florence, for example. And that's what makes the world so exciting is, is that there's possibility. I don't know if it's going to happen when I'm exploring it, but that's what on top of the world is, is, is that looking for me, it's about this possibility. I, there's so much I have to look forward to. Um, And that when I think about the fact that I might be able to do that and still work and still, you know, spend a weekend in Tuscany and, you know, go to Rome or Milan, that's immediately what I think of is just possibility. You know, there's being on top of the world is momentary. It's a momentary thing that we often feel. But I want to create moments where I feel on top of the world. And right now, spending a month in Florence is making me feel on top of the world. Yeah, I can see that from the eyes, <laughs> the sparkle. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. And what I really appreciate about you is you don't just talk about what you've experienced. You distill the essence from it in a way that I can hear it. Oh, I appreciate that. So I'm glad you. that that happened. Yeah, thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you found this helpful, please share the episode with someone you care about. I'd really appreciate it if you'd rate Calm, Clear and Helpful where you download your podcasts. If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in improving your emotional well-being, You're welcome to visit my website, mariettsneeman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mark Marie Sneeman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.